the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. All right, Davy. Um, thank you for for joining us this morning, um, Davy. Obviously, you're involved in in quite a broad spectrum of of political um, discussion and research. Do you want to just give our listeners an overview of of what it is you do, Davy? Yes. So I head up SRUC has a Hill and Mountain Research Centre um, that's based at our Curtin and Octa Tyre um, Upland Research and Demonstration Farms near Cree and Larach. So I took that over um, oh, seven years ago now. Um, and uh, 18 months ago, uh, I also formed a larger Department of Integrated Land Management within SRUC. So I'm involved in a range of research activities, both managing it, but also um, in conducting some of it myself, although not as much as I would like to do. Um, but also, um, I've been working in um, agricultural and agri-environment policy at a European as much as a UK and Scottish level for the last 30 odd years. So I, I am involved in a range of um, um, policy discussions. Um, as well. Fantastic. And, and I ask this of all the, the speakers who come on to the podcast, what's your general sense of how the agricultural sector is coping with the, the COVID uh, outbreak and, and moving into a potential green recovery? What, what do you think the outlook of that is? Well, certainly, and, and during, we're still in the midst of, of, of COVID and, and, and unfortunately things look as if they're going to get worse before they get get better. Um, but certainly um, uh, agricultural industry has here in Scotland has coped extremely well um, with the situation. That, that's the industry all through from um, primary producers all through the sort of supply chain mm-hmm. um, um, and been able to actually uh, provide a, a, a wide range of, of products in different ways um, out to sort of consumers um, out there and, and, and the consumers have largely responded particularly during the lockdown period um, and, and looking to actually buy um, much more local and sup- 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 support local businesses that way. So much bigger question as to how long we will have to be in this sort of um, COVID type situation uh, and certainly how much um, a, any sort of consumer desire for um, that interaction um, with the with with the producers and the supply chain direct um, can be maintained, um, and and certainly green recovery and what we what we as an industry and what individual producers can do to contribute to that it's still not necessarily that clear um, yet. It's green recovery is a is a relatively new sort of concept brought on by the sort of COVID, um, and so. Uh, um, I, I don't think it's just the um, um, industry itself. I think everybody is still just trying to work through what does that actually mean in practice and for individual businesses for um, for different parts of the um, agricultural industry. Has the, the COVID outbreak, has that impacted what's going on at Curtin right now? Have you guys had to change what you're, you're researching currently? Um, and what are, you, what are you currently working on at Curtin? So, um, um, well, there's a number of answers to that. First of all, you know, um, the type of research that we're we're, we're doing um, from um, Curtin, uh, there's quite a bit of it on farm, but there's also quite a bit of it off farm now as well. We've markedly increased the range of both national and international work that we're we're actually doing. 
But first of all, just going back to your original question about um, COVID. So um, the lockdown came in March. We were just getting prepared for um, in the lambing season starting in sort of late April through May. And so uh, clearly we had to put in place um, a, a, a host of different mitigation measures to actually protect um, the, the, the staff, um, farm staff in particular, during that period. But we we were able to um, um, keep the um, um, lambing going Um Fine, um, all through that sort of lambing period, clearly animal welfare concerns trumped any sort of research needs. So there was a period um, from um, the end of March through until um, end of June, beginning of July, where we were putting less emphasis on research as such and just making sure we were actually dealing with the lambing and, 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 and ensuring animal welfare was, was, was paramount. Most of my researchers based at Curtin um, were working from home. Many of them still are. We've had a small number of them um, since um, late June, early July, gone through a, a, an internal SRUC um, health and safety process to allow them to um, re-access the farms, particularly to um, input into uh, some of the wider range of um, data collection that we're doing both with the animals but also else, elsewhere on the actual farm itself. And with regard to some of the um, examples of what we're doing, and I, I will give you examples only, uh, just try and get you a flavour of the type of research that we're actually doing, both on farm and, and, and off farm. So a big focus for the last four or five years um, from a, a, a sheep perspective on the farm, we've been comparing how our... Um, High genetic potential, what we call our high performance um, Scottish blackface um, sheep, um, have been doing uh, against the um, the Welsh clins that we actually introduced about ten years ago. Now they they they've run on um, together um, um, across the farm um, um, for all of that period. For the last four or five years, we've been actually testing how well the clins and the blackfaces perform by actually having some of them um, spending much more of the time higher up the hill. Um, um, and some of them spending much more of the time sort of lower down the hill and in the in by fields, just to actually test how um, well the the, the clins uh, in particular uh, can cope with our sort of climatic sort of conditions um, on the farm. Um, uh, and also, um, uh, uh, you, you heard um, in the early part of the series, uh, we're doing a lot with what's called the Internet of Things and, and, and sensors. And so we've been looking at um, on-farm tracking um, of animals, um, and we're now part of a, a virtual fencing RIS, Rural Innovation Support Service group, um, that Malcolm, who was earlier in your series, um, gave a, 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 an overview of. Um, and related to that, um, there's a Internet of Things um, sensor-based precision, um, precision ranching project um, occurring out in um, the southwest United States of America um, at New Mexico State University that we are we are part of, uh, and we're also using sensors on the farms itself um, at Cree and Larach um, to gather environmental information to allow us to sort of compare and contrast the delivery of pub, what we call public goods from from different parts. Um, of the farm, particularly we're, we're comparing and contrasting two of our large hill glens, one of which was wooded 20 years ago, um, and the one next door, which is um, grazed by both our sheep and, um, and cattle during that time frame. Off farm, apologies, off farm, um, just again, three three quick projects as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an indication there. 
um, we're um, um, partners with Edinburgh University um, and uh, a veterinary practice and research practice called RAS Solutions down in, down in Yorkshire. Um, we're look, we've been looking at upland sheep and beef farms across four areas of the UK, so Yorkshire, um, Scottish Borders, um, Sky and Uist and um, Orkney Islands, uh, and um, characterising um, upland sheep and beef farms um, within those areas of the UK uh, in terms of um, how resilient um, they are, both socially, economically, and environmentally, um, to sort of economic and and or climatic shocks that are going to be impacting on these upland systems um, um, as we go forward um, over the coming years, and that we're halfway through that project um, at the moment. Um, We've also got a lot of work going at an international level. Um, we have a new project that started, well, it started earlier this year and then was delayed slightly because of the, the lockdown period um, that we've reinvigorated um, that project now. It's a project called Eurosheep. Um, it's going to run from three years from, from this year. Um, it's led by what's called the Livestock um, um, Institute um, in France. It involves ourselves, French partners, partners from Ireland, um, Spain, Italy, Hungary, Greece, Turkey. Uh, and basically, it's uh, it's looking at um, flock health, flock nutrition, flock management through the year. Um, um, and it is um, building on a previous project called SheepNet uh, that was looking specifically at lamb survival and different approaches to improving lamb survival across um, in that wide range of uh, sheep-based um, countries across Europe. Um, as I say, that will run for um, three years from 2020, and we're just about to um, uh, have the first national um, workshop. That's the first UK workshop in, in, in October 2020, um, and that will provide information that's feeding into the first international workshop that's scheduled. Both of them are going to occur virtually. Um, that uh, international workshop is scheduled to occur um, in November 2020. And finally, just as that, that flavour, we are actually leading, so Claire Morgan Davis and uh, my team up at um, Kirkton of Tataya, um, she's leading on a large um, European project called Tech Care. It's looking particularly on how can precision livestock techniques provide information um, on the welfare um, of animals, particularly the welfare of sheep um, and goats. It's literally just started um, um, as, we're, as, as we're speaking. The launch was a couple of weeks ago. Um, here in the UK, it's involving ourselves with um, also with the Morden Research Institute, but we've also got sixteen other partners drawn f- from as far afield as Ireland, Norway, Italy, Greece, even even Israel. So we're compared to when I took over seven years ago, we've markedly increased the range of on farm and off farm um, activities that we're doing. Sounds fantastic. No, no, that, that that's really interesting stuff. David, as far as um, the, the sectors within uh, the, the farming industry go, what is the, the perspective of a researcher on the performance of, of beef and sheep markets at the minute? Well, certainly, um, and so we have both, um, we're primarily a sheep farm up at, up at Kirkton Octa Tire, uh, but we have got a, a, a small herd of um, cattle that we reintroduced there about eight years ago. Certainly, from a sheep perspective, the, um, the, the, the autumn sales um, have been particularly buoyant. Um, um, as far as I can see across um, um, all of Scotland. Um, and that's probably not to be um, um, unexpected. You know, uh, we have here in Scotland, we have the lowest number of breeding ewes 
across Scotland as a whole, it's at their lowest number since about 1900, 1901, 1902. Um, and it's certainly a lot lower than the, the peak that it was in the, in the, in the early 1990s. I think we're just up above um, 2.6 million breeding ewes across Scotland as a whole, compared to nearly 4 million back in the, back in the, 19, um, the 1990s. So it's, you know, I think part of this buoyant price um, is reflecting um, 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 both uh, 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 potential supply issues going forward um, and always uh, when you see any marked changes in the livestock industry it's in many cases it's those that choose to actually stay um, 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 within the sheep industry in this instance that will actually um, um, reap some sort of reward um, if we get into a sort of a, a, a concern about um, um, limited supply um, going forward nevertheless you know, I do work a lot in policy. Um, Brexit is a major concern, particularly a no-deal Brexit um, going forward. Um, and as, as as we are speaking, we've just had the potential amendments to the UK Agricultural Bill um, defeated first time around um, in the House of Commons. Um, and so, you know, there, there is going to be a... a, a potentially major repercussions um, for um, the sheep industry, the upland livestock industry, depending on what type of um, deal can be negotiated with the European Union in particular um, between now and December 2020. And there's a, there's a whole host of issues associated um, with that that um, um, uh, is part of the sort of the economic shocks I, I, I mentioned earlier on um, when we were talking about the sort of the resilience or lack of resilience in some of our upland livestock systems. So, David, what do you think is is the biggest threat to to the sectors currently? Is it Brexit? Um, is it? I know we'll we'll talk about climate change in a little bit. Um, is it public perception? Do, do farmers need to to work harder to to win over the general public? What are your thoughts on on these issues? So, all three of the, those are relevant, um, and probably. Um, um, if you had asked me that at different points over the last three or four years, you know, the, the priorities would have changed three or four years ago. It would have been very much climate change um, 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 is with us. It's been with us since the 1990s and particularly for the upland livestock sector, it's going to continue to actually constrain um, what can be done um, by upland livestock farmers and and they will need to change some aspects of what they're doing in order to actually help mitigate um, the impacts both to um, wider society but also to the farms themselves um, if Scotland is to actually reach um, net zero by, by 2045. Climate change is with us, will continue to be with us. It's, it's, it's certainly a big, big issue. But right this minute... It's the lack of uncertainty that what of what happens after December twenty twenty, um, with Brexit, um, um, and particularly tr um, trade um, um, negotiations uh, uh, or, or trade availability out with the UK after that. That has that's that's top of the list um, 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 as we speak, uh, because unfortunately uh, our upland livestock farming systems. Um, are extremely um, vulnerable, extremely fragile, um, and if we lose markets for um, um, our products internationally, then that will have a very quick um, impact um, on an on an individual farm business um, um, or 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 the supply chains um, supporting that farm business. 
climate change is with us will continue to have impacts, but Brexit and what the type of Brexit we have um, or we experience um, has the uh, and the real um, potential to be a, 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 an almost overnight pulling the rug out from under the industry's feet, for example, um, or ensuring that rug is still there and, and, and supporting the industry as it, as it moves forward. So if um, if we agree that, that, that Brexit is the initial concern for the agricultural sector, what, uh, what from your perspective, David, should uh, should beef and sheep farmers be doing to, to increase their resilience to, to uncertainty and to change as, as we move into 2021? And uh, obviously, by now, David, we've talked about it. You've listened to, to the podcast that we had with, uh, with Daniel Stout and with Robert Ramsey. Do you have any kind of reflections on some of the things that we discussed in there? Any kind of uh, additional bits that you wanted to throw into the discussion? Um, yep, and um, please please keep coming in and reminding me um, of, of, of the, that set of questions um, that you had there. Um, going back to Brexit, then um, support for um, uh, farming um, in Scotland and the UK across the European Union um, uh, the, the funds available for that support um, have been and still are in the European Union um, ring-fenced. The amount of money set aside for agriculture support, um, um, and that's generally available for you know a period of five years, six years, seven years sort of thing. Here in the UK, that ring-fencing is going to disappear. Um, and so any public funding that is made to, to, to farmers um, in the future, whether it's in Scotland or elsewhere in the, the devolved nations of the UK, that is going to have to be justified on a year-on-year basis. And going back to your question about um, um, uh, livestock farmers and the general public, we need to ensure that the general public, as much as our politicians, are aware of what um, um, value we're actually getting from our upland livestock systems in Scotland and elsewhere in the UK in order to ensure that there is a political will there to continue, um, not just a political will to continue to support upland livestock farming. That political will exists in Scotland, but we need to ensure that that can actually turn into um, 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 reality because post-Brexit, there will be a different set of checks and balances on what public funding is available, how it's spent, and and just as importantly, um, any public funds going forward, we, Scottish Government, UK Treasury, will be needing to see um, um, measurable benefits coming back um, from that public funding against a range of, of, of outputs and um, to be able to justify that that, that that public spending is is worthwhile so that was the that that, 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 that that was the sort of first part of the the question bringing together the the issue um, of we need a we need a much closer understanding and relationship with 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 the general public and um in both a Scottish Parliament and a UK Parliament, and many of our politicians as well, who primarily represent um, urban areas and are possibly less um, less um, familiar um, with the type of issues um, that impact on farming in general and, and, and upland farming um, in particular. Those those are things that individual farmers can help influence to some extent, but it's primarily, you know, um, farming union representation um, um, and others that can actually help with that. At an individual farm level, improving your resilience at an individual farm level is going to be a combination of two things um, in my mind. What 
what an individual farmer, what share he can do um, at their with regard to their agricultural practices um, to ensure that they're as cost-effective um, as possible, to ensure that the um, and the livestock systems, because we're talking about uplands here, um, the livestock systems um, are, um, or the livestock in their system, um, are performing um, um, to the best of, of their ability. They're not carrying any passengers um, as far as individual animals that are not um, in producing lambs, producing calves um, um, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a regular basis and, and getting a better understanding of how individual animals are actually performing and being able to take decisions uh, um, about which uh, animals to retain in their flock or herd and, wh- and which animals to actually cull out of their flock and herd in order to actually improve uh, the agricultural performance of it, but also with uh, keeping a weather eye on ensuring that we're trying to um, reduce the, the overall um, um, greenhouse gas emissions um, from um, um, these flocks and herds in the uplands um, um, by ensuring that they are um, 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 performing as, as, as well as they, 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 they can be expected to be um, within that. That being said, and that will be very, very important for, for, for every um, 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 farmer and crofter across Scotland um, to look at what can be done from an agricultural practice point of view. But that will only get us some way towards um, um, the, uh, the what's called the net zero emissions target for 2045 that's been set for Scotland, and so um, um, different different farms and different crofts have different starting points, but there will also need to be an additional focus on integrating some different land uses on most upland um, farms and crofts uh, where possible uh, in order to actually ensure that those individual farms are able to sort of sequester more carbon. So whether that's actually integrating more trees in and around the farm, whether that's engaging in peatland restoration where they can have the opportunity to do it and it's viable to actually do that, or even you know wetlands themselves and not draining wetlands can actually help with um, carbon sequestration um, in the soil. So there's a combination of target the on-farm activities from an agricultural production side of things, but also target what else could be done around the farm to actually help um, mitigate, alleviate, contribute to um, a net sink um, as far as carbon is concerned. So is that um, uh, with the best will in the world, if you're going to keep livestock, they are going to still continue to emit greenhouse gases. Uh, So we want to get to this net effect, i.e. that the amount of gases that have been released by the individual livestock is offset um, by the changes to the management practice and by the additional sequestration that's happening um, on farms. Would you favour offsetting emissions from livestock, Davy, or, or do, do you see a requirement for Scotland to, to need to reduce the number of, of ruminant livestock that it's carrying? Um, um, we will have to reduce the number of livestock. The um, if you if you make um, a, a, an individual flock or an individual herd more cost effective, i.e., the um, the amount of um, it, it, scientists talk and politicians talk in the amount of um, carbon dioxide equivalents, there's a whole host of sort of greenhouse gases out there, but they can all be summarised down into sort of carbon dioxide equivalents. And and one of the metrics they actually use is the amount of um, carbon dioxide equivalent per kilo of end product, per kilo of lamb or per kilo of beef produced. Um, And certainly becoming more cost effective, 
at a farm level can actually mean that the overall um, um, CO2 equivalents per kilo of that product actually does drop. But in the vast majority of cases, the overall becoming more cost effective and performing better still means you um, potentially have more animals performing well on a farm. And so at a farm level, the overall emissions level at a farm level will actually increase. So the only way we can actually balance things off is to actually have a smaller herd or smaller flock performing more effectively. And so that will will require some level of um, um, livestock um, reduction um, in numbers. Um, that will vary depending on um, where you are in Scotland as a whole and what type of um, feeding system you're actually um, um, employing. Clearly in the hills and uplands, um, the vast majority um, of the, the grazing resource that the, the sheep and cattle um, are utilising, uh, they're utilising something that we as humans can't actually benefit from until it's been converted into the protein in terms of um, lamb or beef, um, whereas other livestock systems might also be um, uh, impacting at a, at, a, at, a, at a national, a UK and a global level because they're importing quite a bit of their um, um, feed into the farm uh, and the, 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 the CO2 em equivalent emissions, the, the emissions associated with that need to be taken into account and they might have a, a, a potentially a, a, a larger challenge to try and actually reduce um, the impacts at an individual farm level. It's interesting you say this, Davey. I, uh, I, I'm currently working with a, a climate change benchmarking group here in the southwest of Scotland, um, and, and we've identified a, a series of, of farm, uh, farm efficiency factors that, uh, that we're going to be targeting for improvement over the next wee while. Uh, some of that includes the use of inorganic fertilizers, but I, I'm looking right now at, uh, at improving flock efficiency in particular uh, yep. a lot of a lot of scanning percentages around about 120 percent that that we we should be able to to raise what what's your what's your view with uh, improving farm efficiency in terms of increasing farm output particularly within the sheep sector what uh, what, what should people be doing um, to achieve that yeah, so um, um, you've already um, answered the question to some extent when you mentioned benchmarking. So everything that we are doing at Kirkton Octa Tyre, everything that we're talking um, to, um, um, well, we're still imparting information out to um, farmers and land managers at the minute in this COVID situation just in a different way. But in a normal year, we would have a lots of um, events on-farm, lots of visitors to the farms, but also we would be contributing to SEC Consulting, Farm Advisory Service, etc. events elsewhere. My key message is it's all about data, um, whether you're talking about the sort of the management of the soil, the management of the fertilizers, the management and performance of individual animals. It's all about understanding, getting enough information to understand what is happening at an individual field level uh, or an individual animal level. So benchmarking, knowing how um, um, your flock or your herd is performing, knowing how um, individual animals are performing within that and what impact they're actually having on the overall flock or herd performance um, is, is, is vital um, as far as that's concerned. So we, from a, from a sheep perspective, um, um, we have, um, we, we've been using um, 
uh, electronic tagging, EID, um, associated way crate and auto drafter as standard um, for the past four years on the farm after we spent the previous five years comparing and contrasting using that sort of approach against a much more conventional condition scoring type um, um, approach. And we satisfied ourselves that actually using that sort of technology for managing your flock allows you to manage your flock as a group of individuals and manage according to individual needs, whether it's identifying animals that are um, starting to become um, unhealthy and, and be able to intervene a lot quickly or, or identifying animals that are actually consistently poor performers and, and being able to actually identify them and, 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 and shift them out of, out of the flock. And also the use of that EID kit in, in our situation, um, we've, we, we've highlighted that it, it can save us about £4 per you per year mainly in labour cost savings um, and by using it for all the sort of the, the handling events that, 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 that we actually focus in on. So from a sheep perspective, yes, it's understanding who's performing well and um, who's not performing well and then what can you do about those that are not performing well? Is there anything that can be done? Can you feed them differently at a particular time of year in order to get them back up to an, an, an individual situation? And <laughs> Part of the reflection back to the previous things in the series, um, Robert Ramsey had already highlighted, um, and with the with, with with a small cattle herd um, um, that we've got, we are using this metric of um, 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 the uh, calves weaning weight at weaning um, um, versus the cows' weight, um, and trying to sort of look for. Um, uh, or, or identifying those cows that can actually achieve, you know, a forty percent or above figure. Their calf, um, after we normally wean about two hundred days after after birth, um, we are looking to actually get um, select ultimately those cows that are out grazing on the hill uh, at, at Kirkton for you know eight nine months um, of the year um, um, solely on, on hill grazing with no supplementary feed while they're out there we're looking to actually identify those animals that can actually be consistently weaning a calf at 200 days that's about 40 plus percent of the, of the, of, of the mother's weight um, and, and, and so again that's all about understanding what's happening at an individual um, um, animal level or if it's you talked about inorganic fertilizer, making sure if you are using inorganic fertilizer, you're using it where you need to use it, i.e. you are looking at your um, soil nutrients um, and ensuring that you're applying the right amount of fertilizer at the right time in the right place and you're not using um, um, any unnecessarily. I think one of the things that came out of that that, that study that the, the, the benchmarking group um, is the need to, to lime and, and make reasonable improvements to the farm. Certainly, the, the members that we've been working with, um, pH across the board has been an issue. Um, and I suspect what's been happening is that farmers have been over-applying fertilizer to, to compensate for the acidity of the soil. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, that's that's definitely something that we want to take a look at going forward. I, I want to pick up, Davy, on something. Maybe I'm just misinterpreting what you're saying. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I get the sense that are farmers too soft with their livestock? Should should we be viewing them with with greater scrutiny? 
and I, and I know that we are guilty of it at home. Uh, we have we have our own farm, and we'll retain maybe an unproductive heifer for a little too long. You know, we'll give a yow another year to to see if she'll she'll carry twins. Should we be um, more definitive in our decision taking and our culling practices? In in general, I would say yes. Um, but that does come down. Um, um, uh, the real answer is that at an individual farm level, um, um, there's a need to be clear about what is it you, um, 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 they're trying to achieve. You know. So again, going back to benchmarking, where are they now, um, um, and what do they need to do to either keep at that sort of level if they're if if if, if, if they're if they're currently performing well, um, or if they're um, um, performing below benchmark levels. Where are the key? Where are the key points um, that they can actually try and make a difference? And then, what does that then mean for their management practices? Um, and uh, you, you'll be well aware from your from your benchmarking exercises that, particularly when you're dealing with upland livestock, although the amount of fuel you use, although the amount of inorganic fertilizer you use, does contribute positively or negatively to your um, um, overall carbon footprint calculation. Ultimately, it's the number of animals you've got, the type of animals you've got, how you're feeding them, and, um, and how well they're performing that will actually drive your carbon footprint up, down, or, 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 or keep it the same sort of thing. So as part of that, then being more cost-effective going forward, I wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's, it's farmers being soft. Um, in, in my experience, um, it might reflect that although, you, uh, well, given your example, you used your own farm, you might have, I mean, it's easy with a heifer because usually we've got a lot less of them um, on a farm than, than we have sheep. But going back, going back to sheep, you know, you might remember, you, know, you might physically remember one who hasn't performed very well, you know, this year compared to last year or this year and last year. But it's very difficult unless you're actually actively recording and actively going back into you know the information that you're accumulating over over a time frame is very difficult to be consistently identifying those individuals so some may actually um, um, um poor performers may actually get through from one year to the next simply because you know we the individual farmer hasn't been able to sort of flag that they were a potential um, um, individual that was uh, uh, causing a particular issue or causing a particular problem at a, at a particular point in time. So having a way of bringing that data together and then being able to go back into it um, and easily um, extract out who are the consistent underperformers, who is consistently five kilos lighter then she might need to be, you know, um, in in the in the sort of the the, the post tupping period sort of thing, being able to identify that and do something about it. So yes, culling will be part of that. It might be as as a, as, a, as I might have mentioned earlier on, if you can identify those problem individuals early enough in the in in the, in the in, in, in the season, you might be able to intervene feed them differently, get them back up to a weight that they can then maintain and they can then perform well through the rest of through the rest of the year. So so culling is one part of it, but, but understanding who is who in terms of within the flock is an issue and why that issue is occurring is just as fundamentally uh, is just as fundamental, not just to to be um, um overly sort of culling um, if you don't need to. Um, and, and and part of what we've been doing at Curtin 
is looking at what at whether if you have animals because you can understand how well they are actually performing who have gone you know who are older than the normal four or five crop where you would then be culling out a whole cohort if those animals have um, um are, are perfor- have performed well enough they've got uh, still got good teeth still got a good udder then allowing them to actually um, continue um, um, for another one or two sort of production cycles is another way of sort of reducing and um, potentially reducing your costs um, in terms of the, the purchase costs of, of bringing animals back in, uh, replacements in, um, as long as you can be sure that that animal is actually going to um, perform during those extra years that, 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 that you're actually um, um, giving them um, on the farm. And David, maybe maybe transitioning from uh, farm efficiency now to uh, to the, the the larger environment, what role or, or sorry, how how do you view agriculture in terms of um, ecosystem services and potential benefit to Scotland's upland farmed environment? So, um, uh, when you talk about the uplands in Scotland, um, as opposed to most uplands around the world, you can't really separate out um, um, the um, uh, agricultural issues from the um, environmental issues, um, or more importantly, what needs to be done to tackle those. So, um, 40% of, of, of Scotland um, 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 terrestrial area is upland. If you consider um, uplands as being real hills and real mountains, things with points on them. Um, but actually, um, the further north and west you go in Scotland and out to the islands uh, in the far northwest, we get soil conditions, vegetation, and this type of climatic conditions that's normal for um, up, a, up a hill, up a mountain, occurring down at sea level. And so 70% of Scotland's agricultural land is upland. Or, or of some form of upland character. That means if 70% of Scotland um, has, has hill farmers and, 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 and crofters on it, they will have a big role to play in helping Scotland um, manage um, our climate change um, and uh, um, emergency and our biodiversity crisis going forward, simply because they are managing a large proportion of Scotland's overall sort of land area. But just as importantly, they are. Um, collectively and individually impacted by climate change and, and, and there's a there's a need, there's an, imp- an imperative for them to consider how best to actually um, manage manage their farms and their crops uh, in order to take into account um, the um, wider environmental, climatic and sort of biodiversity um, issues that will that are with us now and, and will be with us um, for some time to come. David, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were uh, previously involved in, in a lot of high nature value farming content and, and research. Do you want to just lay out for our listeners what high nature value farming is and, and why it's important as part of the strategy moving forward for Scotland? Yep. So high nature value farming, um, um, in a general sense, refers to those type of um, farming systems um, across um, um, Europe, because it's primarily Europe that I've, I, I have done in my work with others. So it's those type of farming systems across Europe where the agricultural practices um, are supporting um, a range of habitats and, and a range of wildlife species associated with those habitats. Um, um, uh, in a way that if the agricultural practices stopped or changed, it would be um, 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 
have an adver- have, have an adverse impact on the nature conservation value um, of that particular um, area. Now, high nature value farming um, varies markedly depending on where you are um, in Europe. Um, uh, so we do have in some parts of the Mediterranean, for example, we have high nature value farming systems that are that are more based on um, either arable type of uh, farming system or a permanent crop like orchards or or or, or in, in large parts of Spain and Portugal. You've got um, what's called cork oak trees, um, and they and they graze livestock under those under those permanent crops, the trees. Um, but actually, um, when you step back um, um, and, and look at a European level, uh, about 30% of um, Europe's agricultural land is still under high nature value farming of some shape or form. But the vast majority of that is some type of um, livestock-based farming system, either in the mountains of Europe or in the sort of the um, the more remote um, areas of Europe where. Um, um, the uh, changes in farming systems, the intensification of farming systems that occurred over the last 40, 50 years um, have been constrained by the by the topography, uh, by the type of landscape, soil, etc. Here in Scotland, we're primarily talking um, 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 upland livestock farming systems or upland and crofting livestock farming systems where the individual um, um, livestock are heavily reliant on grazing um, um, a range of habitats that um, are important. They're um, uh, of high niche conservation value from a, a vegetation species diversity, a plant species diversity perspective, or um, for the for the range of um, insects um, and bird life um, that those habitats actually actually provide. Could you argue then that um, that grazers perform uh, an ecosystem service um, in the same way we look at uh, you know uh, uplands for for water retention for for flood prevention or pollinating uh, insect species for for uh, for pollination of, of arable crops and 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 uh, and vegetables soft fruits and things like that is that argument practical and, and realistic to make? Uh, yes, so um, um, preservation, maintenance, enhancement of biodiversity is a, is, is one of the, um, um, the the benefits to wider society that's recognised um, um, through what's called the ecosystem service sort of approach. So yes, very much so, and, and that is what myself and others have been doing over the last thirty years. That's the main argument we have been making for these high nature value farming systems is that while they might only produce a relatively small proportion of overall agricultural product, uh, something that they can make money on from the sort of the the the, the, um, um, the more accepted market for 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 farming products. Actually, the management, the maintenance of these um, um, very important areas from a wildlife and, and wider biodiversity perspective is an important rationale for maintaining these systems. Um, it's been proven categorically um, across Europe that if you actually abandon the farming practices completely, as has happened in, in many areas of um, um, mountains of Europe um, over the last 30, 40 years, then the changes to those habitats, the scrubbing up of those habitats, the, the, the invasion by and, and ultimately change to, to woodland or forest, um, that still has a biodiversity value but that biodiversity, the makeup of that biodiversity is completely different compared to the open habitat plants and, and wildlife that would be associated where you have, have grazing animals going through. Um, here in Scotland, um, 
Um, 80% of Scotland's terrestrial area is under agriculture of some sort of shape or form. 70% of our agriculture um, is um, is under upland or upland character. Um, and the calculations that um, I helped Scottish government um, do about uh, 10 years ago, and they last updated them about um, five years ago, um, highlight that's roughly about 44% of Scotland's agricultural land is um, likely to be um, of high nature value, i.e. It's, it's managed in a way and is occurring in a situation uh, or in situations where um, many of these more interesting um, habitats and wildlife species actually exist. And the vast majority of that um, will occur in within some form of the sort of the uplands of Scotland. Good, good. Uh, David, when, when it comes to, to grazing livestock then, um, I've asked this uh, of, of Robert Ramsey um, and, and of Daniel as well. Um, where do you stand on, on grazing livestock with regards to whether or not um, beef or sheep is, is the correct avenue uh, for, for grazing? So, um, um, thank you for the question. Um, it's reminded me, I meant to make some mention of this earlier on. Um, it comes down to um, um, an individual farm and, and, and the characteristics of that individual farm. Um, but in the vast majority of, of, of hill farms and crofts, where you only have a relatively small part of in-buy, if you've got much in-buy at all, and your primary grazing resource is some form of hill, moorland, common grazing, if, you, if you're out, on, out in, the, in the crofting areas, then actually having a mix of sheep and cattle grazing um, will be important. Um, um, sheep are very selective grazers, um, as I think Daniel was, was highlighting, and certainly Robert was highlighting from the, from the cattle perspective. So sheep are very selective grazers, they're very picky, they're very fussy in what they would actually eat. Um, uh, and so um, grazing solely by sheep um, can result in um, some of the more unpalatable um, um, plants like mat grass um, 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 becoming dominant in a particular area and the sheep won't eat that they, they prefer the sort of the smaller um, herbs and forbs that are much more dominant during the sort of the, the, the sort of summer period actually having a mixture of sheep and cattle grazing cattle um, um, are much more broad ranging in their their requirements they they, they, they graze differently and um, so they can actually help um, take out quite a lot of this roughage that um, um, sheep are, 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 are let, well, sheep won't eat at all. And so it's a combination um, of both sheep and cattle um, in, a, in, in an upland sort of situation um, would be best to um, ensure that the grazing resource out on the hill in particular um, is, is, is uh, over time, is, is, is best suited for um, maintaining um, a, 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 a good uh, a resource for, 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 for both the sheep and the cattle itself. But it does depend on your individual sort of starting point and what you've actually got, what you what you've actually got to to work with. If you've a larger amount of in buy and can can set stock down on that in buy at certain times of the year, um, then it's how you actually manage that grass resource will just be as important as what what um, what type of livestock are actually grazing it. Robert and I touched on this in in our previous podcast, but we did talk about the uh, the support through the Agri Environment Climate Scheme for having native cattle on the hill. Do you think that was that was a good step to take? Was that moving in the right direction? 
it certainly was an interesting and helpful step to take in that when you <clears throat> excuse me when you look um, across the sort of the um, agricultural data then um, there's been a general trend in um, cattle in general, not just native breeds, but cattle in general, um, declining in our hills and uplands across Scotland. Um, and it's only in those areas where that type of support for those type of native breeds was maintained through agri-environment agri and climate that that you can see um, 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 it bucking the trend that cattle were still, still actually um, in there. Um, there's, there's been an ongoing debate in academic circles for 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 many years, you know, in terms of um, and whether um, 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 native is 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 good, bad, or indifferent compared to sort of much more continental breeds, for example, you know, out in a, out on a hill environment, and you know, it depends how hard an environment, how harsh an environment you're actually uh, you're actually dealing with, and um, certainly from our experience um, at Kirkton Tyre, um, the cattle we put back in there oh eight years ago, yeah eight eight or nine years ago, um, um Ewan Campbell our 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 farm manager, um he was keen uh, uh to it was a a, a small herd of sort of Aberdeen Angus Cross um, um breeding cows we put back in there, but after about three or four years um. Um, Ewan um, um, wasn't completely convinced that all of them were, were, were coping as well with the harsh environment we have. They're, they're basically out on the hill from about you know March, April through until December in some years. Um, and he thought some of them were a wee bit too thin-skinned. So in the last sort of um, three years, he's been changing the structure of the herd and particularly introducing some beef shorthorn um, into um, um, the herd. Um, one to actually get a get a, a, improve the sort of the potential hardiness um, of the individual animals themselves, and now we're in the situation where he's gone back in with those um, short horn cross um, um, Aberdeen Angus um, um, heifers. Um, he's crossing them now again with Aberdeen Angus bull to try and get a bit more of a mix of the the benefit of the sort of the um, 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 the production and the, and, and the hardiness there, but also um, what he is looking to do. Is actually try and reduce down the overall size um, of the the adult cow. Um, and we have um, certainly within our um, Aberdeen Angus herd, I think the average weight um, um, most recently was something about like seven hundred and forty five kilos of an individual. And average weight of individuals was that, but we had some individuals that were, that were over eight hundred and fifty kilos, which is a, a, a an awful lot of weight to carry around in the hill. It's an awful lot of weight to actually feed and get, get enough feed on a hill to maintain your own condition um, as a breeding um, cow, let alone actually then make sure you can produce enough milk and energy um, um, for, a, for, a, for a calf as well. So uh, whether it's native or not, and, I, you know, I, you know, come from a hill farm. Um, um, I, I originally, I sort of... Uh, um, I would, I, 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 I get and, and and support the native argument, but again, from a functional point of view, you want animals that are breeding animals that are um, relatively light, capable of withstanding the sort of harsh conditions, um, and and producing a, a a good calf at the end of the 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 the, 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 the summer period if it's a if it's a spring grazing, uh, to get the best out of your your individual animal. 
And in terms of resilience of of the individual animal themselves, obviously climate change is going to bring on a lot of a lot of issues, uh, and and potentially change the the growing conditions of these animals, let alone the the environment that they're that they're living in. Do natives present an opportunity to to be more resilient to that challenge, um, or or do you think that continentals will have no problem um, keeping up to that as well? Um, so uh, there's there's a lot in your question there, and 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 there's a, a wide range of native breeds and there's a wide range of continental breeds out there, and it's 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 always going to be a case of making sure you've got the right breed in the right place, depending on the individual sort of conditions um, um, on the on the actual um, hill farm or, or croft you're actually talking about. So, you know, if you have um, either the possibility of you've got somewhere um, sheltered um, 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 on the farm um, um, that could be used as a, 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 an outwintering site um, um, for the animals, then you'll have more scope um, 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 with regard to what breed you're actually um, um, uh, is most suitable for your sort of environment. So if you can either outwinter them in a sheltered area or you've actually got the facility to sort of bring them in for a, a period over winter um, to get them out of that really harsh period from sort of, well, sometimes it's the beginning of December, but certainly end of December through to um, middle of March uh, is a very challenging period for any type of animal, whether it's a native or a, 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 a continental breed, to be out on an open hillside. Um, they might actually, you know, survive out there. But if they're losing weight during that time frame, especially if they'll be carrying calves, it's not a great situation for 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 any livestock to actually be in. So it depends on your own individual sort of circumstances. Um, but if you if 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 you're a much more harsher, exposed um, um, hill type environment with less. Um, less potential for establishing shelter or bringing animals into shelter then certainly you know the natives with their thicker skins their 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 their, 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 their hairier coats um um generally but not exclusively smaller weights so they don't need to eat as much each day to keep up their own um, um, um energy requirements are going to be in a better position a better starting point than than most continentals will be able to and uh, David, just moving on to, uh, to to a little bit of policy discussion, how important do you see um, policy being going forward in terms of the support that's available to, to maintain farming in the uplands and indeed the, the, the islands of Scotland? Yep. So um, uh, there's a lot of discussion ongoing at the minute about policy, and that's about um, agricultural and environmental support policies post-Brexit. So that's primarily looking at the post-2024 situation because there's going to be what's called a transition period uh, in between. But increasingly, um, there's um, um, a lot of discussion about uh, what needs to be introduced before, or what, what if any changes need to be introduced before 2024, if we're actually to um, um, allow our um, farmers and, and other land managers to be in a better position to make any changes that's needed sooner rather than later, um, so that they're in a better position to actually make the, the 20, 2045 um, net zero target, um, um, for example. Um, but I see uh, and, uh, and there is a lot of discussion ongoing and it's not really as, um, um, clear with either at a, a, a Scottish level or at a UK level exactly where the, the, the balance in, in, in support mechanism is actually going to fall. 
But there's two things clear in, 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 in my mind. One, um, as I mentioned earlier on, it's going to be highly important. Um, uh, it was well, it, it is already recognised, um, both at, certainly at a, a government level, um, at both a, 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 a UK and a Scottish level, that hill farming and crofting, um, from the wider um, social perspective, but also from the wider perspective that they are um, la- supporting land managers in those sort of hill and upland areas, will be highly important going forward. Um, I've not heard anybody say that we shouldn't be supporting um, hill farming um, in any sort of um, 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 fora that I have actually been in. What will be important, the second thing, it will be not just how we support hill farming and crofting going forward, but what is the ask of them? What is the outputs that they are actually going to be providing? And as I mentioned earlier, been able to been able to justify what those outputs actually are. And we will need to be able to actually measure those outputs um, um, on a regular basis, you know, uh, uh, every year, every second year, every third year, uh, in order to um, continually continue to make the justification as to why these public payments um, are, 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 are relevant and necessary. In general, we can say that hill farmers and crofters are going to be very important in terms of land managers of the future. Yes, from an agricultural production point of view, but even more importantly, from an environmental management point of view. But we then need to make sure that whatever type of public support scheme is designed, that it's designed in a way that we can continue to justify um, that support uh, or that level of support um, going forward. That's the challenge um, within all the sort of policy discussions um, that are ongoing at the moment. In terms of, of measuring farm output then, are you referring to, to natural capital? Um, is, is that something that farmers should expect to be assessed on? Or are we looking at kilograms of, of output per hectare? Uh, what, what does that look like? It will be a combination of, um, and it won't just be one metric, as, as, as I've mentioned earlier, the kilograms per per um, kilograms per of CO2 um, emitted per uh, product, per, per kilo of product. Is only one way of looking at the sort of the agricultural production. We'll need to look at agricultural production and, and have a, a range of efficiency metrics, so as to be sure that if you only look at one thing, that might actually disguise or hide um, other things that are actually happening on the farm. So we'll need to have a range of both agricultural production method, metrics and a range of um, more um, environmental management or environmental benefit type metrics. I'm not talking about you know, 40 different um, metrics for any one farm, you know, the metrics will will, will um, um, differ depending on the sort of farming system we're talking about. But we're going to have a, we're going to need to have a suite um, of, um, I don't know, say half a dozen just for the sake of argument. Don't, don't pin me down to that in two years' time. But, but more than one metric to actually get a real understanding as to what is actually happening at individual farm level. Because, uh, the key is it's net zero. It's not expecting every farm to be completely zero when emissions. Excuse me a second. Um, so we need to have a, have sufficient metrics where we can see how those different um, trade-offs are actually operating and whether those trade-offs are acceptable. <coughs> Sorry about this, Alex. 
and 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 so yes uh, what 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 we need what, what we're not yet at in the in the wider policy discussions is being clear we're, we're clear in a general sense of the range of um outputs we want from from um, agriculture in Scotland for example what we what we're not yet clear of is what are going to be the priorities for hill farming and what mix of agriculture and environmental outputs do we want from hill farming versus what mix of agriculture and environmental outputs we might want from dairy farming or arable farming we're not yet at the point of being clear about that and but once we are actually clear on what the priorities are that will then dictate what mix um, of um, metrics we actually need and, and that will certainly then dictate what the ask is of the farm uh, different farms different farming systems in terms of the balance between agricultural production per se being a, an output as opposed to environmental benefits arising from um, agriculture or or, envi or other environment or other environmental managements um, on that farm what is clear, though, is the climate emergency, the biodiversity crisis, will dictate what is asked of all farms across Scotland. Um, it's it, it's too big an issue. Both of those are too big an issue. Every farm um, and croft across Scotland will have a role to play in delivering something um, against um, um, both of those um, uh, environmental issues. Obviously, David. Where, where climate and conservation conflict, there's going to have to be an awful lot of, of discussion and research done. But just in my mind, there are some practices that some farms could do, which may benefit their, their carbon footprint, if you like, but may be very detrimental to, to biodiversity locally. Is that something that Scottish government are conscious of? And are there discussions happening around that and, and how we get past that? Certainly, certainly, when you come down to any um, uh, agricultural practice change or any land larger land use change, there's, there, there's always going to be sort of um, 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 trade offs. Uh, uh, it's very. Uh, it's very unusual for you to get what's called win-win situations um, um, all, all the time, um, and where you've got trade-offs, it, it then comes down to what is what is seen as the higher priority, um, um, which was why um, I was highlighting we need to actually set some priorities of outputs for different farming systems, um, agriculturally and environmentally, so as that we can actually have a proper understanding and discussion if we actually are requiring or asking this particular farm to produce this set of agricultural outputs and that set of environmental outputs. We know and have a discussion and accept that that will mean that um, biodiversity is prioritised, or it's there as a it's there as a second as a, as a second priority because the climate change um, imperative has and what they can provide at that particular um, that particular farm um, um, has more opportunity to to focus more on the climate change side of things rather than the biodiversity side of things or the water quality side of things. Just it does it does come down to an individual situation. But can I ask, can you give some examples of where you see there might be a, a land use change or a land management change where um, you're going to, there will be a, 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 an adverse effect on biodiversity as such? Well, particularly for, um, for, for lowland dairies here in the southwest, you know, dairies typically can, can stock quite high, 
but at the detriment of, of species diversity within the sward, which will then knock on, uh, have a knock-on effect for, for pollinators. Um, we've seen historically a lot of arable farmers taking out hedges in, in the north, uh, northeast um, to, to enhance production. I, I just think that there are instances like that where it's not clear what the farm should do um, in terms of uh, this this climate versus conservation. Um, right. Struggle. Yeah. Okay. Thank that 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 that's helpful. So, <clears throat> so yes. So so it will be a a farm by farmer, a farming system by farming system type basis. Um, it's a generalisation, but in general, um, um, from a from a biodiversity and and a, and a climate change perspective, then actually our upland farming systems, from a biodiversity perspective, we will be largely looking at those systems um, to uh, perform practices that actually help maintain the biodiversity that's still there. Um, and and, and, and optimise or, 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 or enhance that, and and, re- and rec- recognising that actually it's the livestock grazing practices getting it right at the right time of year that can actually help maintain or, or enhance that sort of biodiversity. Down in the lowland systems, then actually it is going to be a case of um, we have seen um, habit a lot of habitat loss, a lot of habitat fragmentation, the hedgerows that you, you've you've mentioned there, the species rich grasslands that you've mentioned there. It will be it will be a case if we if we're looking to improve um, biodiversity in those sort of situations, it's going to be a case of trying to consider can we do that in a way where we can actually get both biodiversity benefits and, 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 and climate change benefits, or in many lowland situations, it's actually water quality benefits that, that society is actually looking for. Um, and so, you know, that then comes down to um, what type of, what range of um, changes can be made at a farm level that puts um, habitats back into um those farms um, that increases their biodiversity value, but also has some additional climate change or or, or water quality um, 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 improvement value. Uh, and ultimately, although it's, it's going to be difficult in all instances, does it also bring a, 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 a value back to the farm itself in terms of providing more um, um, shelter for the, the the crops or the livestock um, 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 that are there. Uh, so, you know, again, it does it does all come down to you know what is most relevant for an individual farm itself. But I could see, um, for example, uh, um, take your take your 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 hedgerow example in the first instance, then um, putting. Um, hedges back into some of these lowland landscapes and not just having hedges on their own but having hedges and a a well-managed hedge bottom and a small narrow one meter two meter strip beside the hedge managed differently um, that could be enough uh, to make a significant impact on on some elements of sort of um, um, invertebrate um, and 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 for some bird species that if if enough farmers were doing that, um, um, that could make a, a difference at a landscape level to to actually help biodiversity. Um, in a lowland situation, I would argue strongly that in the vast majority of cases, we, we would be looking at what can farmers do 
collectively to change the landscape. If we looked at one individual farm and asked them to do sufficient to change biodiversity on their farm on their own, i.e. all the rest of the farms around them just stayed the same, that would be too big an ask for them. It would markedly reduce their, their, their production potential. But a, a, a little bit of change across a, a catchment or a subcatchment can or could be enough to make a sufficient difference for some of the things we're, we're concerned about from a biodiversity perspective without adversely impacting on the rest of the production potential um, um, on the farm itself. And <coughs> taking your species-rich um, grassland pers pers perspective, um, uh, in a lowland situation, but it's it's just the same. What we have done at Kirkton um, is we have um, um, fenced off um, our water courses, and um, primarily to actually um, stop soil erosion as as the livestock were going in and out of the water courses on the on the lower. This is in the in by fields, the lower part of the farm. Um, but the benefit that that's had is that those water courses um, um, are much more um, floristically rich. Um, during the summer, they're much more full of insects than the fields next door. And so we've got the best of both worlds. We've got the biodiversity on the lowland part of the farm markedly improved. That's where the um, 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 the swallows and the barn owls are constantly hunting along these um, um, fenced-off water margins. Um, but we still have the, 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 the in-by fields as a, as, a, as a productive part of the farm. In a low-ground dairy sort of situation, for example, or even a low-ground arable sort of situation, those um, um, uh, fenced-off water margins could also act as um, 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 uh, traps for capturing um, nutrients that were, were, were flowing off those fields and, and thereby helping to reduce diffuse pollution risk, but still contributing something um, to, the, to the sort of the biodiversity um, side of things. And finally, with regard to this, um, off the top of my head, all of these farming systems, whether it's livestock or crop-based, whether you're in the lowlands or the uplands, climate change is not going to stop. We're just going to we're trying to reduce the amount of impact it has, the amount of warming that occurs um, over over the over the course of the next decades. So we are going to have situations in um, um, all these farms in Scotland where we are we are going to need much more in the way of shelter for livestock, shelter for crops, and so we need to think how what what does that then mean for an existing farming system and how could it change to actually be able to adapt to climate change to mitigate to reduce the impacts that climate change will have and still allow them to be still allow them to be productive so planting more trees in uncertain parts of farms maybe some arable and, and horticultural crops might go to sort of alley cropping um, along a sort of a, an agroforestry type system in the low ground where you can actually get um, 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 fruit or nuts, something productive off the trees themselves as well as what you're actually cropping down below. There's a, there's a wide variety of, of options um, out there, uh, but it just depends on the opportunities that you actually have at an individual farm level, which of these is going to work or have a better chance of working for, for you yourself. So, um, so habitat creation and vitally linkage between farms and within the farm itself will be really important going forward. Very much so, especially at, especially at a, a, a lowland farming system level because those um, lowland landscapes have changed so much. It's, it is still important at, a, at, a, at an upland level because some of the changes, so I do a lot of work um, 
Um, there's an, an, a, a Scottish initiative called Working for Weeders. So curlew has declined by over 60% in Scotland since 1994. Latwing has declined by over um, 50% since um, 1994. Um, the type of um, management that we need to put back into our lowland or our upland landscapes to get those, to stop the decline in those bird species and actually actively reverse that decline that has to can only be achieved if it's more than one individual, more than one farm that's actually doing aspects of that management. And the trick will be to try and ensure that we can get, um, if you and I were neighbours, you and I might not need to do exactly the same thing. Aspects of what you can do in your farm and what I can do in my farm might be enough to complement each other and produce the type of conditions that, our lapwing um, 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 breeding pairs might actually then get the best of everything um, from the combination of both our farms rather than you or me trying to recreate everything a lapwing needs or curlew needs on our own farm. So collaboration and particularly facilitation to ensure that individual farms um, in a neighbouring area can actually do things in a complementary way for a given outcome um, will be even more important going forward. Okay, thanks, Davy. Um, I'm conscious of the fact that uh, we, we have gone over an hour at this point, um, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. I, I always ask my guest speakers um, towards the end of end of the the interview: Is there anything within the industry, Davy, that you're seeing right now that you think we should be paying more attention to? Something that you think is going to be critical going forward, or, or something that you think will be of use to to upland farmers? Um, yes. So um, um, at the time that we're speaking, we've just seen um, Scottish government have piloted their new um, sustainable agricultural capital grants scheme. Um, um, so uh, for the first time in a major way, making um, grants available for um, all farming systems to invest in um, um bits of kit, bits of technology that can actually help um, make help them understand how well their individual um, 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 farming system, uh, the soils, the livestock, et cetera, are actually performing and, and actually then take steps to to, to, to manage um, those individual items and in their, 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 their farm better. So the EID um, associated way crate and, and an auto drafter that I, I talked about earlier on, um, that is um, um, or was on the uh, uh, the listing of available items um, for um, upland farmers to uh, um, uh, potentially uh, participate in and, and make use of. Uh, and, and the grant uh, that was uh, alongside that um, was a, a, a good sized grant and, and would cover most, if not all of the the needs from an in, from an individual upland farmer's perspective for, for bringing that, getting that kit um, on, onto their farm. And it's that type of technology that's going to be essential going forward to help understand how individual livestock, um, individual animals um, in, in the sheep flock are actually performing, as I uh, think I've hopefully highlighted all the way through. And so that is, um, it's it's new. Um, it's something certainly in the upland um, sheep system that, that we had been um, calling for um, from Kirkton and Octotire um, for the last seven years based on our experience up there. So it's great to see it come forward. It's too early at the time of recording to know how many 
Um, upland farmers have taken advantage um, of that. It's clearly it's a grant, so there's still an element of um, um, having to pay a proportion of it um, potentially um, themselves as well. Um, and so I, I would hope the upland livestock industry has actually embraced that opportunity. Uh, what I will say, though, is having the kit is only one step in the in, in the way to ensuring you can understand what's happening on your farm um, and that bit better. Uh, it will be essential going forward for any of the individuals who have invested in that kit, been successful with the grant, to actually um, know how best or how to get the best out of that kit, how to use it appropriately for their particular farm, their particular situation, the type of questions they need answers to. Uh, and so training will just be as important um, as technology um, going forward. Um, and so I see that the um, you know the Farm Advisory Service, the Farming for a Better Climate Approach, the, the rural, rural Innovation Support Service groups, they all will have an important role to play in ensuring that Anybody who's been able to invest in new kit, new technology on their farm can actually make the most of it going forward. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, David. Um, I, uh, I'd just like to, to, to thank you. I know that uh, you're a very busy man. You've got a lot on your plate right now. So we really appreciate you speaking to the Farm Advisory Service today. More than happy to do so. Um, it's been great speaking to you, Alex. Thank you very much.